0: Hello, everyone, and Namaskar. So, today's podcast is a continuation of the reading of the book titled Ananda Murti de Jamalpur Years. And this is a reading of the 28th chapter titled The Search for the City of Bliss. Ananda Nagar is the nucleus of this universe. It is not merely the physical Ananda Nagar. It is also the Ananda Nagar of our inner heart. We will have to build it in all possible ways. We will have to take all steps for its rapid development so that it can show light to the entire universe. During the construction of the Jamalpur Jagrati in 1958, Baba alluded to a future project that he had long had in mind. While on field walk one night, with Acharya Kuldeep and several others, he said, You are all working very hard for the Jagriti construction, and it will serve a good purpose. People will be educated here. They will come here to learn spirituality. But in the future, you will have a much larger place where you will have to work much harder than you are working now. It will have many schools, a veterinary college, a university, a hospital, and different other facilities. People will come from all corners of the world to see it and to study there. In early summer 1962, Baba called several senior margis together in Jamalpur and told them that he wanted to make a model community where the world could see the ideology of Anandamarga in practice. A tribal area would suit them best, he said, an impoverished, neglected area that would offer scope for numerous social service projects benefiting people who had no access to proper education, modern medical treatment, and so on. Furthermore, the organization was now growing rapidly And a small town like Jamalpur would not do as the central quarters of the global organization he had promised him Anandamarga would soon become. Efforts immediately got underway to look for land that would fit his criteria. Branai put ads in various newspapers and key margis were alerted to be on the lookout. When Acharya Sarangi Cautiously pointed out to Baba that they had no money to negotiate with anyone should they find a suitable place. Baba asked him if he knew how Benares Hindu University and Bishwa Bharati had been built up. No great cause will suffer for want of money, Baba told him. There are people who are eagerly waiting to donate land and money for such a cause. In mid May, Baba paid a visit to Ranchi. On the way back to Jamalpur, his train passed through Purulia district. Baba pointed out the window toward the stark, arid rolling hills and started narrating its history for the Acharyas who were accompanying him. The ancient name for this area was Rar, the land between the Kamsavati and Damador rivers. It has a great spiritual and cultural heritage. For many, many centuries, it was the meeting place for the three tantras, Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain. Kapil Muni was born and raised here. His ashram was situated on a hill just outside the town of Jalda. Nowadays, however, Rar, along with Magadha, are the two areas most neglected by historians. If I find time, I will add a special chapter in Indology about these two. Baba went on to describe how the inhabitants of Ra had come to be among the poorest in India, mostly illiterate, the majority of them making out a meager existence through subsistence farming. In recent years, It had suffered from extensive deforestation as the poor villagers found themselves forced to cut the few trees for fuel, further eroding the already rocky soil. Yet, despite all this, Baba said, for many centuries this land had been home to some of India's greatest tantrics. Many saints achieved liberation here, far from the eye. Of so-called civilization. This would be the ideal place to build our model community and headquarters. To the acharyas looking out the window, it seemed like a stony wilderness, hardly suited to be the headquarters of the rapidly growing organization. But they all knew that if Baba suggested they try there, chances were their future would be tied to the seemingly inhospitable region they were passing through. Soon afterward, Pranay was informed that the previous Raj of Garajapur, Ragunandan Singh Deo, would be a good person to approach in that area about a possible donation of land. Pranay, along with Sarangi and Kedarnath Sharma went to visit the Raj. They found him to be a poor but large-hearted man without sufficient funds to properly maintain his house, but eager to do something for a good cause, exactly the kind of person they felt most comfortable with. The king introduced them to his wife, Prafula Kumari Devi. He explained that they had some land in her name that they had been looking to donate, to some spiritual group. But until then, they had not found one that seemed suitable. With the change in the seminary laws, they had to donate the land or else the government would appropriate it. But they were not willing to give it to just anyone. Some days earlier, he had dreamed of sannyasis in orange robes that would come asking for the land. When the Margis explained to him who they were and what they wanted to do with it, to build children's homes, schools, a hospital, and other social service projects, the Raj became convinced that these were the people he had been waiting for. Almost apologetically, he explained that the land had no commercial value. It was not near any township, nor was it rich agricultural land. But it was right in the midst of the people who most needed such humanitarian projects. Sarangi and Kedarnath went to see the land, and when they returned to Garjapur, they finalized the agreement. On August 23, the final papers went through. Pranay, who was in Garjapur taking care of the final details, sent a telegram to Baba with the news. That Ananda Marga was now the proud owner of 500 acres adjoining the tiny village of Baglata in Garjapurtana. To the naked eye, it was 500 acres of barren rocky hills, but to the Acharyas who found the place, it was the beginning of a dream that for the moment existed only in Bhava's imagination. On August 31, Baba gave the new land its name, Ananda Nagar, the city of bliss. On July 22nd, Chamaklal and several other Margis went to the Jagrati for Baba's darshan. They found Baba in a pensive mood. For several minutes, they remained silent. Then they asked Baba if anything was the matter. Baba nodded his head and said, As we speak, Krishna Menon, India's defense minister, is making friends with the Chinese in Geneva. This will prove very harmful for India. Today's friendship will turn to enmity. Bad days are coming for India. In three months, China will attack and India will lose. On several occasions, the Margis had heard Baba express his displeasure over the popular slogan proclaiming India's friendship with China Chini Bai Bai, the Chinese are our brothers, and his disapproval of Neru's talks with Chow and Lai. Only now did they know why. That evening, Anirudha Mukya accompanied Baba to the tiger's grave. When they reached the street lamp at the edge of the field. Baba stopped and asked Aniruda, if he had a piece of paper. Note down, 90 days from today, China will attack India. When you get home, note it in your diary. Aniruda scribbled the note, but he told Baba that he didn't believe it. Anandamurti says they will attack Baba replied. Believe it. Did you note down the date? Good. When Aniruda returned home, he wrote it in his diary as Baba had instructed, but he was not convinced. When he told his family what Baba had said, they told them that if Baba said it was true, it was true. But Aniruda took exception to what he considered blind faith. We are friends with the Chinese, he said. It can't happen. A few days later, the newspapers came out in support of his argument. Chen Yi had given private assurances to Krishna Menon in Geneva during discussions over the periodic skirmishes then taking place on the disputed Himalayan border between India and China, part of the tensions between the two countries that had flared up when India gave sanctuary to a fleeing Dalai Lama in 1959. There may be skirmishes between the forces of the two countries, Chenyi told Menon in the published reports, but full-scale hostilities are unthinkable. This assurance was enough for Neru and Menon, but not for Baba, who on several occasions reminded the Margis that bad times were coming. When they asked Baba why he didn't warn the government if he knew this was going to happen, Baba told them, that a report on the Chinese preparations for war had been forwarded to Menon earlier in the year from the president, Rajendra Prasad, and that the report had reached the prime minister's desk. But Nehru had written impossible on the file and sent it back. Neither of them want to listen, he said. So there is nothing more to be done other than to prepare oneself. Later in the conversation, Baba voiced his views on India's position. Tibet should never have been lost to the Chinese in the first place. Nehru, in effect, handed Tibet over to the Chinese when it was not his to hand over. Rather, the Indian army should have taken offensive action on the Tibet-China border when it was still feasible. Their plan of action should have been offensive-defensive, knowing that China had designs on Tibet. Tibet would have then remained as a buffer state that the British had intended it to be. On October 10th, a small skirmish took place on the China-India border. Thereafter, Nehru uttered his infamous statement that the Chinese should be thrown out of La, a statement that the Chinese would later use as a support for their claim that India was planning to attack China and that they were acting out of self-defense. By this time, a skeptical public was beginning to brace for the possibility of war. In the meantime, the forewarned Margis were busy acting on Baba's suggestions to prepare themselves. Many Indians were now counting on rapid U.S. help, should hostilities begin. But on the 16th of that month, the Cuban Missile Crisis broke out, and American eyes quickly turned elsewhere. On the 19th, Aniruddha was again in Jamalpur for field walk. Where is your diary? Baba asked him. When he told Baba that he had left it at home, Baba scolded him and told him to take out a piece of paper. Note down, tomorrow's the 90th day, the Chinese will attack. Still somewhat skeptical, Anirudha asked Baba if it were really possible. Wait until the morning, then you will have your answer. The next morning, when Aniruda woke up, his family was listening to the news of the attack on the radio. He hurried back to Jamalpur that evening to see Baba. Where is your newspaper, Baba called out when he saw him. Anirudha held it out to show Baba. Did they attack or not? Yes, Baba. Did you check your diary? Was it the 90th day or not? Yes, Baba. Now, do you have faith in Ananda Murti? When I say something is going to happen, it will happen. During the next few days, as the conflict heated up and the Indian army suffered demoralizing losses, Baba came to the Jagrati each day and described what was happening on the battlefield. News which would only come on the radio, or appear in the newspapers afterward. He drew a map and pointed out the areas the Chinese would attack and explained how they would conduct their operations, where they had their soldiers stationed, and in what numbers. According to Baba, China's secret wish was to capture the land north of the Ganges, the fertile Gangetic plains, which they had long coveted due to China's overpopulation and relative lack of arable land. Their desired route would bring them all the way to Calcutta. In a later field walk, Baba stopped under a shade tree near the tiger's grave due to a light shower. He asked Dasarath to sit in meditation posture and touch them at his Agya Chakra. Then he asked him to go to Peking, Dasarath replied that he was seeing a signboard in Chinese. Now go to the house of Chao Lai. I am in front of a large house guarded by security men. That is the house. Go inside and see what Chao Lai is doing. Baba, Chao Lai is sitting on a chair in front of a table. He is resting his head on his hand. There is a bottle of alcohol on the table and a world map on the wall behind him. Look at India on the map and see if you see anything special. Yes, Baba, there is a red line drawn on the map and circling the Gangetic area up to Calcutta. Now see what he has in his pocket. He has some papers in his pocket. Read them and tell us what they say. Baba, they are written in Chinese. I cannot understand them. All right, I can convert them into cosmic language and then reconvert them into Angika so that you can read them. But it is not necessary. You can come back now. On several occasions, Baba exhorted the Margis to create a second line of defense. Should the Indian army not hold in, in response, the Margis organized two self-defense camps in Danapur, and Pranai sent messages to the different units to organize similar camps. Do not expect any mercy from the Chinese soldiers, Baba told them. They are capable of great acts of cruelty. He told the Margi women that they should be ready to self-immolate if necessary, rather than let themselves be violated and killed by the Chinese soldiers. Stand on your feet and guide the public, he exhorted them. Give them training. In one meeting, Baba said, if they approach Patna, the Indian army may have to blow up the Mokama Bridge. Otherwise, there is a danger that China will overrun the entire country. But after a short pause, Baba assured the concerned Margis that this would not happen. The Chinese will turn back, It is not the wish of Paramapurusha that the Indian spiritual tradition disappear from this planet. Baba's assurances helped to calm the Margies, but the general tension in the country was heightened even more by the nuclear impasse that was taking place halfway around the globe. One evening, after returning from the tiger's grave, the Margies expressed their concerns. About the possibility of a world war. When they reached Baba's house, they stopped under the tree opposite the gate. Baba told Dasarath to look at the sky and concentrate until he could see President Kennedy and Premier Khrushchev. Describe the color of their mental plates, he said. Dasarath peered into the sky and said that Kennedy's mental plate was white, with black spots, while Khrushchev's was red, with white and black spots. Had Khrushchev's mental plate been totally red, Baba said, then he would be ready for war. But as it is, there is no chance of war. Khrushchev wants to suppress the war, and so does Kennedy. By mid-November, the Chinese forces had routed the Indian 4th Division and no longer face any organized resistance anywhere along the border, having advanced by then close to the outskirts of Despur in Assam. Then, suddenly for no reasons, never publicly disclosed, the Chinese turned back. On November 21st, they declared a unilateral ceasefire. One morning, a few weeks after the ceasefire, Baba came to the Jagrati, and conducted General Darshan for a small group of seven or eight margis. The discussion turned to the conflict with China, and the margis took advantage of the opportunity to ask Baba questions on the subject. One of them was a young Punjabi with a turban, who was a supporter of Netu at a time when Nedu was drawing heavy criticism in the Indian press for his perceived mismanagement Of the recent crisis, after a few minutes, Baba turned to Dasarath and told him that he wanted to show him what two people were doing at the moment. One of the new hold timers, Master Diren, recalled the scene. Baba said that he was taking Dasarath's mind to a far-off place on the other side of the border to show him someone he knew. Saying this. Baba touched the back part of his head at the medulla of Blangara. Dasara's body became stiff and started to sway from side to side. Baba asked him to narrate what he saw. He said that he had reached Delhi. From there he continued on to Jammu. Then he crossed over to the other side of the Himalayas where he described some mountains covered with snow and then a snow-capped peak that was glittering in the sun. Then he described a small stream of water flowing down the mountain. Baba asked him to follow the stream. Dasarath described the stream becoming bigger and bigger, slowly becoming a river that continued to get wider. On both sides of the river, there were Buddhist temples, and besides the temples, Buddhist compas, Baba asked him to cross that area and proceed further. He directed him to one of these gompas and asked him to narrate what he saw. Dasarath said that it was very hazy and dark inside, but he could make out someone sitting there in meditation. The person's head was covered with a cloth and only the face was visible. When he saw his face, Dasarath told Baba that the person looked like Subhash Chandra Bose. Baba asked him to enter his ectoplasmic cells and see what he was doing. Dasarath said that he was doing meditation. Baba asked Dasarath to inquire whether or not he was willing to return to India. Dasarath replied that he was shaking his head in negation. Baba then asked him to come back by retracing the same path. When Dasarath reached Dali again, Baba asked him to see what Pundit Neru was doing in Din Murti Bhawan. Dasarath saw Neru sitting alone in a room in front of a desk with two drawers. Baba asked him to enter inside one of the drawers and see what he kept there. Dasarath saw three bottles and a glass. There was also a knife inside. Baba asked him what was in the bottles. Dasarath said that it was some kind of alcohol, but he could not identify exactly what kind. Baba asked him what colors they were. As Dasarath described the color of each bottle, Baba said what it contained. They were whiskey, champagne, and brandy. Neru started drinking from one of these bottles. Then Baba said, Yes, his leadership has become compromised due to his habit of drinking alcohol. Now see the difference. In the morning, one man is absorbed in the meditation of God, while the other one drowns himself in the intoxication of alcohol. They were working together for the independence of India. One is a symbol of extreme renunciation, and the other of extreme indulgence. The Punjabi boy was shocked. After the demonstration, I started wondering. I was convinced that Baba was capable of such clairvoyant powers. But was he indeed the same person that we thought him to be, the all-powerful and all-knowing perfect master? Baba stood up as if to leave. Abruptly sat back down and asked Dasarath to see his own past life. Baba said that he was taking Dasara's mind back 7,000 years. Dasara's body started to shiver. Even the color of his face started to change. He started to perspire a lot. He started repeating, Baba, Baba, Baba. And then he said that he saw a flood of effulgence. In the midst of that effulgence, he saw Lord Shiva sitting in meditation. Baba said, Is it so? Then he asked Dasarath to move forward 3,500 years and describe what he saw. Dasarath saw a charming personality with fair complexion, wearing a crown. Baba then asked him to move forward in time and say what he saw. Dasarath replied that he was seeing Baba in a radiant form. Baba smiled and said, See, Dasrath, I was a king in my past life. Now I'm a poor man. Just before the ceasefire, on November 17 and 18, Baba made a weekend excursion to Ghasipur and Ara. He conducted DMC in each place and arrived back in Jamalpur on Monday night, the 19th. On Sunday afternoon, While he was waiting in the Buxer Station waiting room to catch the train to Ara, a couple walked in with their little boy. Baba called the boy over and asked him his name, but the boy remained silent. Again, Baba affectionately repeated his question, and again the boy didn't answer. Baba asked him several more questions, but the boy didn't reply to any of them. Finally, Baba turned to the mother who by this time had tears in her eyes and said, What is the matter with your boy? Why is he not answering? I'm sorry, sir, the mother replied. The boy has been dumb since birth. He is not able to speak. Baba shook his head slowly. No, no, this cannot be. Such a bright, good-looking child. How can it be? Surely he can speak. Baba reached out and gently touched the boy's throat at the point of the Vishuddha Chakra. In a cajoling tone of voice, he said, Now speak for me. Speak. You are not dumb. You can speak. I know. Go ahead and say something for me. To everyone's surprise, the boy began talking. The parents began to cry and fell at Baba's feet. Baba gave them his blessing and then returned to his conversation with Pranay. By this time, Ramila had completed her meditation lessons, all taught to her directly by Baba, but her family life was not what she had been brought up to expect. Her husband not only had a full-time job in the railway workshop, he spent virtually every free hour attending to his duties as the General Secretary of Anandamarga. He was, in many ways, more sannyasi than the monks in orange robes. As the months passed, Pramila began to despair that she would ever enjoy a normal family life with children, a nice house, and a husband with whom she could share her life and not simply a name. One afternoon, she was feeling very depressed. The thought crossed her mind that it might be better to end her life rather than continue childless and companionless for the rest of her days. She was thinking how she might go about doing this when there came a knock at her door. She went to open it and was stunned to find Baba standing there alone. Not knowing what to do, she invited Baba inside and hurried to the kitchen to get some water for the Master. When she brought the water, she found Baba sitting at the table. She offered the water with both hands and then sat down herself at Baba's request. How are you, Pramila? Baba asked. Pramila started crying. She told Baba what she had been thinking and why. How difficult her life had become, always alone, without the hope of ever having children, or a proper place to live. No, Pramila, you shouldn't think like this. Suicide is not the answer. You cannot run away from your samskaras. They will follow you into the next life. And the samskara you create by such an act is a terrible one. Anyhow, you have no reason to despair. You will have your children and a house and a wonderful family life. Baba began describing a charming two-story house with the front of the house to the north, facing a small residential street, and the back opening up to a lovely pond with flowers and shade trees. You see, Pramila, when you want to look out at the world, you can go to the front of the house and see your neighbors walking by, but if you want to be alone, You can sit on your back veranda, look at the flowers, and enjoy the solitude of nature. Don't you like flowers? As Baba talked, Bramila started seeing the house in front of her, as if she were watching a movie. Without realizing it, her eyes closed and she slipped into trance. Baba started describing her children, two boys and a girl, and she saw them appear in front of her inner eye in the same house. Enchanting her with their smiles as if they were waiting patiently for her to come. How long she continued in that dreamlike trance, she didn't know. Her normal consciousness only returned when she heard Pranay calling her with obvious overtones of annoyance. Pramila, what are you doing? Asleep at the table at this hour? It's not even dark yet. Pramila looked around for Baba and was startled to see that she was alone in the house of Pranay. The tears started to fall. She began telling Pranay how Baba had come, and shown her their future house and their three children. Pranay was more than a bit skeptical. Baba, here? Visiting you alone in the middle of the afternoon? Please, you fell asleep and had a dream, that's all. Pramila, however, was adamant that it had not been a dream. It doesn't matter what you say, Gurudeva was here. We are going to have a two-story house with a pawn in back and three children. Mark my words. Pramila got up and began preparing Pranay's dinner. The despair that had been growing over the past few months was gone and would never return. Gurudeva had revealed her future. For Pramila It was not a matter of if, but only of when. Baba started teaching Pramila the different lessons of Kapalik Sadhana. Before the year was over, she would become one of only three people, as far as is known, to whom Baba taught the fourth and final lesson, Shava Sadhana. One new moon night, Pranay informed Pramila that she should eat very little and be prepared but he offered no explanation beyond that. Just after midnight, there was a knock at the door, and Pranay admitted Baba into the house. Pranay asked if he should leave, but Baba instructed him to remain. Pranay spread a blanket for the three of them to sit, and Baba began questioning Pramila about her experience with the previous lesson of Kapalik. Whether or not she had perceived a concerning Shakti and other questions to verify that she had successfully performed the sadhana. Then he informed her that she should prepare herself to receive the final lesson of that practice. At this point, Pranay objected. He began quarreling with Baba. Pramila did not quite understand what they were quarreling about. It was only afterward that she realized that Pranay had not wanted her to learn the lesson When Pranay finally relented, Baba explained to Pramila that the last lesson of Kapalik was Shava Sadhana. Meditation performed while sitting on a corpse, a practice that was normally the exclusive domain of Avidya Tantrics. After teaching her the process, he explained that he was going to withdraw Pranay's life force temporarily so that he can provide the corpse. An arrangement to which her husband reluctantly agreed. Pramila did not bat an eyelash. She had already known that the practice of Shavasana Sadhana existed. Moreover, she had explicit faith that if Baba removed her husband's life force, he would return it to him as well. Baba closed his eyes and started chanting some mantras. After a minute or two, Branai lost consciousness and fell over. Baba examined him for vital signs. When he was satisfied that Pranay's life force had left him, he arranged the body in the corpse pose and left the room so that Pramila could perform the sadhana. When she finished the practice, Baba returned and told her, Now you will have to take an oath that you will never disclose this process to anyone. After she took the oath, he said, the powers you warrant through this practice should never be misused. You will live like an ordinary person, but in secret, you will do your Kapalik practice. If you ever misuse these powers, then you will meet your downfall. Baba started chanting mantras in order to bring Pranay's mind back to his body, but there was some problem. It seemed that for some reason, the mind was not willing to come back. Baba raised his voice and ordered it to return, but it took some time before Pranay's heart started beating again. It was nearly dawn when Pranay finally revived. In the late 70s, Pranay would take a job in the railway workshop at Lilua, on the outskirts of Calcutta. When they moved there, Pramila insisted they buy a house but Pranay balked at the idea. He pointed out that their financial situation was too precarious to think about buying anything but a very small place. Pramila, however, continued to ask her friends and relatives to keep their eyes open. One day, her brother-in-law told her about a two-story residence for sale in the Calcutta suburb of Bali. The owners lived on the second floor and rented out the first floor. The moment she heard about the house, she felt a premonition. She told Pranay that she wanted to go and look at it, but Pranay objected. In the first place, he said, a two-story house would be way beyond their budget. And in the second place, with the tenancy laws in Communist West Bengal being what they were, it was a hell to deal with renters. Once they were installed, there was no point in going, Pranay told her firmly, but he was no match for Pramila. She used the time honored logic that it doesn't cost money to look. Before Pranay knew what was happening, they were on their way to look at the house. As they started walking down the street where the house was located, Pramila started feeling an unaccountable sense of familiarity. They entered the gate and started climbing the stairs to the second floor. When she reached the second floor veranda and saw the pond in the back, she remembered the vision she had had many years before. It was the exact scene that she had witnessed. She returned to Pranay and told him, This is our house, Pranay. This is the house that Gurudeva showed me. You are a dwarf and you want to touch the moon was Pranay's laconic reply. There is no way I can get together enough money for this house. Pramila was undeterred. She continued to visit the house, made friends with the owners, the tenants and the neighbors, and eventually worked out a deal with the owners. She would have three children, just as Baba had said, two boys and a girl, and their faces would be the same that she had seen in her vision at the ages that Baba has shown them to her. Thank you.